This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is John Robshaw, textile designer and founder of the company that bears his name. As a young art student on a trip to India, John fell in love with the technique of hand block printing. He began learning the craft and making his own fabrics. And almost by chance, they were discovered by blue chip designers like Peter Marino and Michael Smith. John's career took off. He still makes fabrics today, but his company has since expanded into bedding, art, apparel, and he's revamping its furniture line in the coming year. I spoke with John about standing out in a crowded market for fabric, working with artisans from around the world, and why he's opening a new shop that he hopes will bring back a quirky, personal approach to retail. Today's podcast is sponsored by Cherish, the interior design industry's source for one-of-a-kind antique and contemporary furnishings, art, and decor. With over half a million items and a thousand new arrivals daily, most with no lead times, Cherish is a must-visit for designers. Go to Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com. This podcast is also sponsored by Universal Furniture. Universal's new special order upholstery offering allows you to unleash your imagination like never before. With over 400 fabrics, 50 leathers, and over 200 frames to choose from, crafting your perfect piece is fun and easy. Now available, drape any frame in any fabric. Customize with six different leg finish options, plus three nail head trim choices, and enjoy 360-degree views of your creation before purchasing. Learn more at universalfurniture.com. And now, on with the show. John, thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to go back and tell the story of how you built your company, but let's start with what's going on right now. You've got some new furniture to talk about, I know. You're reshuffling your Manhattan showroom, and you're also opening a new location in Connecticut, right? Yeah, I, I think um, once we had two floors in a building here on 29th Street, and we in April, May, when as soon as we could get hold of our difficult-to-find landlord, we <laughs> closed, um, negotiated hard for a month and closed a floor and kept the smaller space. And then my thought had been all along to, um, I was trying to build some sort of a design studio up in Connecticut near my house, which was super expensive. And then all the contractors were booked <laughs> on $4 million houses. So they were just basically not returning my phone calls. And then luckily, um, there's a designer up in Connecticut, Michael Trapp, who we who's really good friends with my wife, Rachel. And we shot in his house. He was generous enough to let us use his house to shoot in. And um, at Around a bit later, he had another house up uh, in Falls Village, and he'd used it for storage. and And I think some basket weavers were in there. Or, you know, it was it was just sort of an old, a really pretty old nineteen twenties bungalow. And um, he was selling it, and it's right down the street from Bunny Williams' shop in Falls Village. So I thought this is great. I can actually open kind of a design studio shop, yes, thing, um, and have some space for design outside the city. And then possibly some small retail footprint with a big neon sign from Bunny Shop pointing down. <laughs> Arrows shop. pointing down from Bunny. Yeah. 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 Half the price down the street <laughs> or something. <laughs> she would love that. Yeah. I'm sure she's keen to support you in any way that she can. No, yeah. She's always, she's been a great supporter and, and I, um, I'm excited 
you know, to get this going probably in the next couple of months. And tell me what your what your vision is for all of this, because I know that we've got some some furniture coming into the mix and we've got some other things. Yeah, yeah. We've relaunched a line of furniture that we did with um, a license we did with Durley uh, before Durley imploded and then like a phoenix came up from the ashes. Became and, whatever um, it is now. What what is it now? It is. Uh, it's his new his new ownership, and they're they've closed a lot of their showrooms and put the fabrics in multi line showrooms. Right. So they've kind of decreased their footprint, and the furniture manufacturing continued. And I assume that's in the multi line showrooms. I haven't sort of seen what it looks like in New York. Okay. Um, so they kind of came back, and and the new ownership is is relaunching it and relaunching the brands. So we started working again with them and um, relaunched a collection we sort of started a couple of years ago. And also the store that I'm going to open up in Connecticut, we can, I'm going to have some pieces up there so people can actually see it. So that's sort of a way that we can sort of have the furniture online and accessible and then have some pieces in Connecticut where people could actually sort of see them and sit on them and, and test them out. <laughs> okay. When you think about why you want to do furniture, tell me, tell me what sort of furniture, what opportunities furniture represents for you. Yeah, for us, um, I think I think because um, I had this sort of crazy Anglo Indian collection, and um, I, I, I had a weird niche in the Durley lines because I was so I think I was you know sort of out there on the skinny branches, and <laughs> I, I don't know how we we didn't really fit into their showrooms. I in, you know we I mean we were in some of the showrooms, but I think it was um, as you know there's not enough space in showrooms to put uh, collections anyway for furniture. So I think it's right. tough you know, it was, it was hard to market it. And, and I realized that kind of as we get into it and, and I was ordering pieces and clients were ordering pieces, but it was, it was really not anywhere together. I thought with us having a, our own footprint and also I thought the pieces were good. I mean, I'd ordered some, we'd sold some, you know, we really sort of test, test drove the pieces and they mostly made sense. I mean, there was, there was some editing um, <laughs> and it, and it's, it's, it's very sort of far-fetched. It's very sort of, romantic and Indian inspired, Mughal inspired. So I, I just thought the collection had a, had a spot that it, it uh, and the people that bought it were some of our more eccentric clients that had these great houses. So it was really, I could see it sort of sitting in certain places. Mm -hmm. And, and also I had it in my house and I was sort of like using it and I really, I enjoyed the pieces and they were all made and it's a great, it's a great factory. Um, and then of course we have our fabric collections and it was fun to see our fabrics on these different pieces and how they worked and didn't work. And, you know, as a fabric manufacturer, it's fun to see the connection. I think because I'm not an interior designer, so I don't use our fabrics on furniture and curtains and, and you know, all the time like designers. So right. it's fun for me to kind of be in the loop a little tighter. Yeah, it was always funny to me. The fabric showrooms would say the minute they started putting fabric on pieces of furniture, up went the sales. It was like people people saw it completed and they said, "Oh yes, I want I want that." And right, and yeah, they, and the same thing with with trade shows. Like we put our we put in Atlanta, we'll put beds up on the you know we'll put certain prints on different beds, and those beds will sell. Those prints will sell on, if they're on a piece of furniture. I mean, even for me, when I see pieces, I'm like, oh, that looks really great. I'll, I'll, that'll work. You know, I think it's just an easy shop. You know, it's easy for the consumer. It, it's interesting, too, that you that you talk about sort of not being an interior designer or, or, or sort of not having gone in, in that direction, despite your many artistic talents, that that wasn't something that you wanted to pursue sort of along the way or. No, no, I think, I think no. I, um, <laughs> no, John's, John's, right, right, uh, John is saying no, no, <laughs> no, no, um, I think, right when I, when I started, um, 
and I started to meet interior designers and, and they were in front of me in front of the client. And I loved having that middleman because mm. they were such amazing salespeople. I mean, they were selling the product for you. I mean, they were just this incredible and they were also always giving you product advice, you know, cause they used everything. They were like, Oh, that's, you know, that, that's, that small ditzy print doesn't have enough ground fabric. The ground color, it's going to get dirty. You know, I mean, they gave you really practical uh, feedback all the time. And I loved having them deal with these somewhat difficult clients at this end of the spectrum, you know, (laughs) of the upper end of the spectrum. Right. It's no easy job. (laughs) And I did get asked once in a while, hey, you know, can you help us? And I would just pass them to, you know, I I had lots of great designer friends that I would just pass clients to them so that was always there's a few designers that i had worked with that i was like oh you if you like this stuff that i make this designer puts it together really well knows like how that, to really use know. it to it to its best advantage yeah yeah they, they're they're into this look if you're if you want whatever you're seeing in our showroom here's a, like there's a great designer i worked with a lot um who helped me design my kinetic house sarah benger oh yeah and she's turkish and she was one of my early early clients i had a small box of fabrics that were vegetable dyed, completely impossible to reproduce. And I'd sent it out to a few designers and she immediately called and ordered, you know, just as a box got to her desk and she'd been a great, you know, she was, she's been a great supporter all along. So I'm happy to pass off, you know, those clients. Well, so in the, in the beginning, what, what were you sort of positioning yourself as what, 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 how were you explaining to, to designers what you were, were and doing? Yeah, I think I think at the very start, I I had I was just so enamored with block printing and um, coming from art school, it was really an artistic take on block printing. And then having gone to India and sort of invested and sweated and gotten food poisoning, <laughs> I was really into this process. And I, I was really a process person, you know, and, and I think that's when I started working with designers and I was like, this is, this stuff's amazing. I, lo- I, you know, I love the, I love the artisans. I love the making of the product. And I think it's really interesting. It's a craft that's dying out to screen printing and digital printing and everything else. And so I was just trying to like keep it flowing. And I think when I started early 20 some odd years ago, there wasn't a lot of this look on the market. Things were really I think to me more fabricated and not messy and they were very cleaned up and buttoned up. And, and I was coming, you know, out of a messy, you know, art school in Brooklyn right. in India. So I, I right. think my aesthetic was a different take on it than what the big fabric companies were doing at that point. Well, and, and, and is that part of what you think the, the appeal was that, that you were a, an artist and sort of had this sort of looser artistic sensibility about it? Yeah, I, I think when I came in, there just um, I think it was in the marketplace, this style or this, yeah, this sensibility style, as far as I knew, wasn't around. And then the designers coming to me were like, oh, this is great stuff. I haven't seen it. And it's got a more casual vibe to it. And and. And I picked up some great early, you know, like Michael Smith and people were ordering right away, Peter Marino. And, and so I was like, I don't, you know, whatever I hit on <laughs> at that moment kind of worked. And important people I, were responding. I, yeah. Well, yeah. And I didn't know they were, I didn't know they were important people. Which, <laughs> I didn't, didn't know that Michael Smith was a highly important designer. Yeah, right. I had no clue. No, no. And that's what I love so much about this whole story, John, is that, so much of all of this just happened accidentally. 
you weren't pursuing a lot of this. You didn't know who a lot of these people were. Let's take people back sort of timeline wise. So you just, you just talked briefly about, uh, sort of art school and, and, and India. And let's, let's tell people sort of briefly the, the history, uh, so that people get a, a sense of the context of sure. what you, what you did and, and, and sort of what you learned about. And as you say, the, the passion that you developed for, for these artisans that you, that you discovered. You know, I, I had dreams of being an artist and, and went to Pratt for an MFA in painting and printmaking. And I had studied a lot of printmaking in Italy and then had gone to China for a grant to study Chinese block printing. Ended up in Brooklyn at Pratt um, doing an MFA. My father said, you're an idiot to go to art school. He's a lawyer. <laughs> and uh, I said, maybe, yeah, you could be right. You know, I think, I think when I started making more money than him, then he was like, okay, I guess you're fine. You know, <laughs> I want to hear what, I want to hear when that happened, but I don't want to. Yeah, that, 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 yeah, that's a, uh, that was a fun conversation, but yeah. And I was in art school in Brooklyn and one of my teachers had a, a side gig where they um, were doing sequin runway dresses in Bombay. Then it was Bombay. Now it's Mumbai. And, and they would give sort of wholesome looking students um, free tickets to, to Mumbai and you'd, you'd stop in Paris to pick up sequins and you'd have breast pa- uh, dress patterns and you would drop off a suitcase of dress patterns and sequins at some mysterious address in Mumbai <laughs> and come back two weeks later and they'd have these incredible sequin uh, runway dresses that they were selling to Calvin Klein and Polo and you know $10,000 dresses. And then you would take your two suitcases and you'd smuggle them back to New York on the flight. <laughs> and I said, what happens if they open the suitcases when I get to customs? You know, I've got all these dresses. Yeah. And just the guy's like, just tell the customs officials that they're your size and he'll leave you alone. <laughs> so um, that was a strategy I had going in. And I started going to India while I was in art school. I was painting and printmaking and doing everything and then going to India. And when I got to India, I had two weeks to wait until I could get the dresses. So I started looking for block printers and I knew about them, so I sort of made my way down to Ahmedabad, um, and there's a big textile school, a famous textile school called NID, National Institute of Design, and I went and hung out there and met some of the students, and they they, they sort of steered me to some block printers down by a river, and so I basically started printing, making stuff, thinking I was making art, sort of, textile art out of the 70s or something. I don't know what I was, I wasn't really <laughs> sure, and I brought this stuff back to New York. I had a painting studio in Soho when you could afford to have a cheap painting mm-hmm. studio on on broom and so yeah and, on broom street and then um at the same time selling i was selling painting to paintings to decorators that would come in for like some spec houses they'd buy like inexpensive student art you know a thousand bucks for a painting right or 500 bucks for a painting whatever whatever you know <laughs> i would take whatever they gave me and uh i had all this fabric piled up in the studio and um chris coleman and carlos moda this I actually remember they would, they came in they oh. were working together at, uh, doing projects and they were like what is this stuff and they started you know ordering it and then sort of so you know it sort of was a weird moment of the light bulb going off thinking oh this is not really the art world thing this is this whole design world which I knew nothing about I knew right. nobody in the design world you know, it was sort of an interesting transition. And I wasn't, I wasn't attached to the art world. You know, I'd worked, I worked at Gagosian, I worked at Sotheby's, I was doing all these jobs after school. I saw the sort of the back end of the art world, which was pretty messy and, and brutal. And, you know, it was, it was a tough place. 
Um, well, so what, so what made it a, a tough place? I mean, I, you know, I know you and I have talked about this a little bit. I, I mean, yeah. it, it was sort of a heady time and, and pieces were going for millions of dollars and. Oh yeah. It was crazy. You know, Gagosian was selling out the Saatchi collection when I was there and it was just, it would come in for half a million and go out for one point five million. I mean, it was like a crazy, you know, we were art handlers in the back, you know, for $20,000 a year. Um, you know, not even, I wasn't even able to live in Brooklyn. I was way out in Brooklyn somewhere. And, and, and I went to Larry and said, Hey, Larry, I need $2,000 more to like, so I can kind of make this all work. I need $22,000. And he was like, forget it. You know, and I was, you know, I was bartending and I, and I think I just saw, you know, there was tons of artists um, it was really hard to get into galleries. Even if you got into galleries, it was tough getting paid by dealers. You know, it's, the economics of it all was, uh, mm-hmm. was, was, was tough. And I was a scrappy, you know, I was in the middle of it all. I, I kind of got it. I was bartending and driving trucks. And, and I just sort of after a few years of this, I just was like, this is a tough, you know, it's a tough gig. And then yeah. you meet designers and the designers are doing projects, have clients, they pay you, they're happy. They're snappy, well-dressed and snappy. And <laughs> they're they're I, nicer. I, 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 they're, they're really sweet. Yeah. You know, they buy you drinks. And yeah, I, I think, I think I, I just sort of like, and, and also I thought the whole art thing about things being art or textiles or design, I was always not, it wasn't this precious commodity art thing. I was always like, I love the vernacular. I love the way things are used. And I love that things get made and used and slept under and made into, you know, curtains i mean i just love that it all kind of um it goes out in the world and does something well so you you mentioned earlier about sort of michael smith and and peter marino and and some 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 big designers yay though you didn't know they were big at the at the time but they they sort of played a a a pivotal role and and i know that there were some some big some big clients, uh, Anna Wintour, I think I remember, and some others that were that were fans of your of your work as well. When when did all of that sort of start to happen for you, kind of in in terms of like dates and time? Do you do you remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good question. Um, yeah, I think I got out the door with some good orders, like with Sarah Benger and like Michael Smith and Peter Marino. Those were early in my late twenties. So I'm 54 now. So like, you know, 20 some odd years ago, I, I, right when I started that maybe first year or two years, I started getting some good orders. Um, and then I think also a great thing. I, I, um, really always appreciated the press and, um, Elizabeth Mayhew at house beautiful heard about me and, um, Margaret Russell, and so I was sort of summoned in to see both of them. And, um, you know, all I had was like this, these weird stacks of textiles and pictures, you know, photographs, actually mm. not a phone, but, you know, <laughs> and, and I just t- tell the story and I got some great press. Um, and Elizabeth Mayhew gave me a great, beautiful piece that she designed in House Beautiful. And, I, and that, you know, completely got me going with like Greg Jordan and some of these sort of big names that were happening. Um, so I think the press and I'm, I'm always, you know, so thankful to the press because, you know, it was so powerful and so strong in the design community. They would tell your story and present you really well. And I think that got me to the next level of sort of seeing, you know, me being known without advertising. Um, and then, you know, people came along the way, like, you know, then Anna Wintour would be like, oh, you should do fabrics for this designer which i didn't really understand how that worked you know so it was it was a it was a connecting time that i think you know in my 
you know, first five years of the, of the, of kind of getting going, um, it was all kind of fast and furious, which really helped me sort of support myself and, and, and keep it running. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about Universal Furniture. Universal's new special order upholstery offering is Benchmade in North Carolina. With over 400 fabrics, 50 leathers, and over 200 frames to choose from, crafting your perfect piece is fun and easy. Now available, drape any frame in any fabric. Customize with six different leg finish options, plus three nail head trim choices, and enjoy 360-degree views of your creation before purchasing. Learn more at universalfurniture.com. And now, back to the show. So many people came to know you from your bedding collection. And so many people discovered you right through through department stores and, and you sort of became this big name on the retail side of things. Tell me, tell me how that happened and tell me how that yeah, evolved. Yeah, yeah. That's a sort of another sort of strange coincidence is uh, the one, one of the, the first workshop I worked with in Jiper, I was printing fabrics by the yard and, and just kind of, you know, putting in some sort of mediocre orders. And he was sort of like, okay, I got to make more money off you. Um, <laughs> he made, he made quilts and pillows and he's like, why don't you just do some quilts and some pillows and like, you know, you get, get some product going. And so he pushed me um, to order quilts and pillows, uh, and like window shears. And so I was like, okay, I guess I have to do this. Otherwise he'll drop me or won't let me print in his workshop anymore. So then I had all this stuff I ordered and then I somehow found out about the trade shows at the Javits and got sort of the back booth in the way back of the building by the bathroom. And, um, <laughs> basically made a t the, t the cheapest booth and covered it with shears. So basically you couldn't even see what was in the booth. That was my strategy. And I'm sort of hover, you know, I'm sort of, I'm squatting down in the booth, sitting on some quilts and pillows, um, no chairs, no seating, I think no order pad or, you know, I just didn't really know how it functioned because I didn't even know anybody that did trade shows. So I <laughs> sort of show up there and, and um, I started, and then also, also I got some orders and then, um, you know, I was sort of off and running with, you know, stumbling along, figuring out, okay, these are production problems or, uh, you know, Hey, that shipment, where is that shipment? I mean, and this is also during, this is the days of faxing, you know, so right. you'd, you'd call, you, you would call India and you'd call your guy and you'd be like, okay. And I'd have to yell fax, fax, fax. As he'd pick up the phone at three o'clock in the morning in India, then he'd like put the phone down, turn the fax on, and then you send your fax. And that was the, that was the speedy communication method, you know, that we used. So, um, yeah, so it sort of, I definitely just sort of tripped into the product world. And then I think once I got into it, I was curious as to, you know, then I sort of figured out, okay, who's making what and, and sort of what the market, I slowly kind of learned a bit more about the market and, and what some of the competitors were making and, and sort of um, pushed over towards bedding because it was sort of seemed natural that, you know, the quilts and the pillows and then sheeting and sheeting was this sort of massive category. It seemed to jive a lot and sort of kept, I kept it in this sort of bedding world. And, and who became sort of your big customers there? Early on, um, some great smaller retailers uh, hmm. sort of you know, up up in Connecticut there's a great shop fig and I'm not gonna mention I won't mention too many because I'll get in trouble forever I forget oh, right but I had, some, I had some I had some yeah. great early supporters in Chicago Connecticut and and they were great 
and they still are, a lot of them are still with me and they're just great, strong boutiques. And again, I think for the boutiques, this is, you know, I was early into this Indian block printing style. So I sort of got, I've got some great stores supporting and ordering. So that kind of kept it flowing. Um, And I didn't start with sort of department stores and all that monkey business till later that so it was was smaller retailers it it, it was smaller retailers and 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 those were people the kinds of people that were finding you at the shows at the javits for example yeah yeah definitely and that was that was it i mean the javits was kind of how javits was how you did your business i mean it's javits and i think um atlanta i don't think i knew about atlanta for a while either this was sort of pre you sort of having a a, a a website this was this was early days when that wasn't even an issue right i mean well before that yeah this is yeah this is way before this is like like we're talking about this is like the magazine world was the big ticket right trade shows were the big ticket um and yeah i mean that was it i mean it was really sort of a focused there were focused markets and everybody did all their business there really, unless you had sales reps, which I didn't have. Right. Um, yeah. So it was, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was very kind of in some ways cleaner, you know, whatever, smaller focused. <laughs> right. Well, and, and is that, so has that served you well, everything that you just described you, that, that sort of deep story and the, and the heritage and you're sort of celebrating the, the craftspeople. I mean, is that part of what, sort of help set you up for success with all of that? I, th- I, th- I think it, it's, it's all, it's all what made it interesting to me. You know, I think that kept me going, that kept me showing up at the trade at the lovely Javits center. And, <laughs> and, um, there's gotta be something and, to incentivize you to show yeah, up at the center. Yeah. Because at the center. yeah. As we, doesn't have, know, doesn't have a lot I'll to remember those. It. Yeah. Bond, yeah. Those bond days. Yeah. yeah I, I, and I think, um, I came at it from an artistic background and interest and I, I've, I've struggled to keep it all alive. And as we grew to keep our production interesting and craft oriented and using artisans and um, using NGOs. So I've really kind of worked in India hard and elsewhere with different artisans that I could, I could tell their story. I could order from them. I could help them make money. So, I mean, that was uh, uh, at the very beginning too, I should mention aid to artisans, which, uh, was you know is an incredible oh, organization sure. that Keith I and yeah, I, yeah. and I, Keith, Keith good old Keith and um yeah and they had a great framework of artisans and and I worked with some of the artisans at the beginning and did some consulting for them and I think that was a great that was a great model that showed me how to kind of continue on and work with artisans and develop relationships and and make them successful I think that you know the working with artisans is not an easy it's not always easy because of the, you know, it's, it's mom and pop, it's it, their collectives, their NGOs. Well, and, and so, so talk to me about that and, and how did, and, and how did aid to artisans and, and how did groups that wanted to work with artisans sort of figure out how to walk this line? You know, there's, there's so much conversation going on in, in the culture today about, sort of cultural appropriation and some of these other issues and, and not wanting to be exploitative. And how, how did you sort of find your, your way with, with that? Yeah. I, I think India is a unique situation because they've been, 
creating textiles for the British, the French, the they for for centuries they've been exporting textiles. It's a very sort of um, fluid. It's a very sort of you know entrepreneurial culture. And I think in India there's so many people making things and so so many different levels that it, it really wasn't. It, it was it is a mature market in 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 some sense and versus like. South America, Bolivia, or Africa, or some of these other smaller, really niche markets. So in India, I think it was very easy to work with fairly developed artisan groups. And, um, and I don't know if, you know, like the exploitation of art, I mean, there is such a strong culture and such a strong, you know, owners of these workshops, everybody, it, it's always a give, it was always a give and take from the start. I mean, there was no, you know, you were worried that you were getting exploited, you know, on that. it was, it was, you know, they were great business people. They were in, interested in design, interested in newness. So I think that was a great balance that India strikes. Mm. It's not the same in other parts of the world where I've worked, you know, where it's really small markets and they're very niche um, products and, I think, um, but wherever I've had those experiences in the Philippines or Thailand or smaller Laos or some of these little projects, um, you know, I've always worked with them and what they can do and tried to be supportive of them. Um, even, you know, if, even if margins were horrible or, you know, shipments were months late or wrong, you know, it, it was all, it was all kind of, you made it work because it was interesting. You, you mentioned about sort of people wondering, oh, how do I get into this? I mean, so so many people have gotten into this, right? And and yeah, one of the challenges, sure. and, and you and I have talked about this before, is there's just a lot of fabric out there. And and it's sort of tougher and tougher to maintain this sort of unique competitive advantage. You had this, you had this head start, but others have found a way to look remarkably similar to a lot of the things that you <laughs> do without without perhaps going through as much of the process and and how are you, how are you thinking about that now? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. We talked about sort of the um, oceans of fabric at the D&D building. And versus when I started, there, you know, there was a lot more niche lines over the last 10 years. Again, like everything's sort of multiplied and reproduced. And, <laughs> and I think with, with, especially with uh, screen printing and digital print, and, and very recently digital printing has really taken off. So it's super easy to make a a file and to send it off to a great, you know, digital printer and to print it on some lovely linen and replicate looks that you couldn't do in screen with, I mean, you could, but it would be super difficult in screen or expensive. And, and so it's, it's interesting that, you know, and, and so many designers have created their own fabric lines. And of course they're going to use their fabric lines because they're into that, you know, whatever they're making, they're into it. Sure. So I think, it's it's definitely become uh, a tougher business and and more saturated and um, the showrooms have um, we've kind of stuck with tried to stick with some of the niche showrooms that have smaller groups or smaller collections um, and I think that helps us because it's 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 the, the showrooms that make an edit to me that's mm. that's what. I think it's interesting and they kind of take their point, they take their point of view. That's the only way that we can survive. We can't go to these huge showrooms with these monster lines that you're just this little dinky, you know, <laughs> five foot section and a hundred feet, right? Of, of Yeah, no, no, no. It, it, it's very challenging. I mean, and, uh, you know, we, we, we mentioned Atlanta earlier, a, a perfect example of a market that you go to that's, that's just so awash in, in fabric that you, you're, you're, you're just sort of over overwhelmed. Uh, and, and even, even at the D and D, as you say, I mean, the, the, and, and the, the showrooms never want you to sort of 
cut cut back or to, or to pull the things that aren't selling. You know, they're, well, what do you mean you're discontinuing that? We yeah. we sold five yards of that last yards year. Four years ago. <laughs> yeah, four years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, and yeah. So, I mean, how do you, how do you sort of work within that challenge? Because I know that in your in other parts of your business, you're you're introduce it and then it sells and then you sort of it's done now yeah, you and, feel it yeah right? it's done yeah and you keep moving and i think yeah we took that we take that approach with fabrics now and um i mean these multi-line showrooms that have 50 lines they don't i mean they know generally how much business you're bringing them but they don't know that you haven't sold five yards of that one print in two years right we know we're like that's a that's a dog let's kill it let's get new stuff in and we used yeah. to get hassled by the showrooms because we'd be introducing new stuff which and killing stuff. And I mean, that's, I think the only way is you have to be brutal in, and you know, you, you have to get new in there, try it, you know, you know, pretty in sort of a certain, a longer period of time, you know, if it works or doesn't work six, you know, like it's not like the betting world, you have a trade show, you get everything out there. Um, you have road reps that show it to all the stores and in a month or two months, you really know which way the collection is moving and what, your hits are and what's your what your dogs are fabric as you know it's a longer lead time they've got the swatches on their desk waiting for the right project so it's definitely a trickier market and and you know all showrooms have different opinions you know we try to show our collections to a bunch of our showrooms and they're all over the place you know one showroom <laughs> likes this look and you know so it, it's definitely it's definitely a tougher business and i think um it's gotten tougher, like you said, because yeah. it's just the market's so saturated. Well, so as a result of it getting tougher, what are some of the steps you are starting to take? I mean, I, we did outdoor with Sunbrella mm. and they, they do a great product. And I think like you probably, I'm sure you, you know, all this movement towards performance slash outdoor, they call it just everything's performance. Yes. You know, we can go anywhere, and 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 we've taken our block prints and translated them to into wovens for this outdoor collection, and it's it, it's amazing because I, I have a, a you know a young child and a wife that spills red wine all the time, <laughs> and the other night she just she had a glass of red wine that just she just dropped on the white and tan sofa performance fabric that we had just gotten into the apartment and I just wiped it right off. And I was like, Oh my God, I get it now. You know? No wonder everyone yeah. loves this. No wonder everyone loves performance. <laughs> yeah. So I think we've, we've adjusted to where I think the market, you know, is really going towards performance. And we still just also try to do things that are more unique. Like we do a lot of metallics, like gold and silver printing, which you can block print, which is very difficult to do in, in screen or digital. So I'm still trying to maneuver around, into little niches of the market to keep those designers uh, interested. Well, and it, and in some markets, have you transitioned away from showrooms more towards road reps or other ways of getting product out there? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. The road rep, cause we learned, I learned about road reps from our betting business where we have sort of 12 independent reps circling the country in their um lexuses um and <laughs> they seem um, to do terribly well at road reps right? yeah they, I, they have always have good cars they've got good cars um they seem and, yeah they're incredible salespeople. and i think from that we in some markets which we weren't really i wasn't really happy with some of the showroom options in some markets like in los angeles we found a great road rep and we left a showroom to go with this road rep and he's done, he's done basically equal business to a showroom. 
he's got a few lines, same model as like a betting rep. And I think it's, you know, a lot of designers don't go to the design centers, as you know, in certain markets, especially Los Angeles, which is a monster. The PDC is a a lot to, yes. Yeah. And even just driving across LA to get to, you know, the model of the road rep and taking it to the decorators or designers it, like the smaller retail stores that we deal with, it's the same model. And I think I think the showroom world, unless it's a really special showroom with a, a unique perspective, is it, it, it won't work. Yeah. Well, it's 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 interesting because it, right before COVID, the there were a lot of companies that were leaning much more heavily into road reps, big name fabric companies that were moving out of showrooms and that were just replacing them with reps and really making this investment and really believing that this was a a, a more economical way for them to go. The, the, the percentages that, that showrooms wanted were just getting so high and, and, and the traffic was less and whatever all the different economics of it were. And, and then sort of COVID, hits and how how has that been for for your road reps for example during this time is it challenging to get in to see people yeah 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 i think i think um going back to we're just looking at year ends for last year and in the our betting world we saw in certain markets like the south is booming texas is doing really well california is got killed um northeast has been tougher and you could see our, you know, our road reps were hitting their, were hitting their stores in these smaller markets or these different markets. And, and they were doing business. They, they actually did well, surprisingly, last year and, and, and being this like guerrilla warfare, you know, I mean, I think they're independent, <laughs> they're um, aggressive. And I think, and they know their territories, they know the business, they know all the designers, they know all the shops. And I, I think the model really works um except for some key i mean new york obviously we talked about new york and the design center and um we're in a great showroom john roselli so there's these heritage showrooms that i think you know are still doing some good business um but i i agree with you this road rep that was this road business thanks to also covid really got just pushed out there and even even though they were having trouble seeing people you know they were having trouble getting appointments they did get some appointments and they did connect with customers and did business so i i'm all i'm all with you that you know it's it's gone that way we're taking a quick break from the show to hear about cherish are you a designer struggling with long lead times from your suppliers and increasingly impatient clients if so now's the time to shop cherish cherish's vintage antique inventory is ready to ship immediately to learn more visit cherish.com that's c-h-a-i R-I-S-H dot com. And now, back to the show. So tell me how you're, how you're thinking about the evolution of sort of the, the John Robshaw brand. Tell me how all of the, the changes that, that we've experienced in the, in the past year uh, and, and all of the different sort of... Uh, some of the markets have been sort of squeezing margins on a lot of the business and, and some areas look like maybe there's more opportunity over here online, obviously becoming a much bigger part of the business for you. But tell me how you're thinking about how you're evolving your business right now and what's, what's driving your thinking about the choices that you're making. I think with 
this COVID year and, and really, I mean, definitely the online world and, and, and really, you know, we've had a great online growth um, this last year, like everybody. And it's exciting to sort of see you somewhat untethered, untethered from, you know, presentation in smaller stores where, you know, you're limited, you know, with what a store buys and how they present your collection or even department stores, you're, you're really sort of, unless you're Tory Burch, you know, you're sort of begging for your space and, 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 and bribing the merchant, the, the merchant there to, you know, get you some more, uh, you know, a better table or something. Um, so I think like, I think the online is exciting because you can present yourself in the way you want to present yourself and, and, mm. and show your vision and also just really know your customer and get great feedback. And I mean, so I think that's exciting realizing that potential. Um, I do but I'm not, again, leaving the whole bricks and mortar. I mean, I think investing in Connecticut and in small, which is not, you know, it's two hours from New York and it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's West Cornwall, it's Sharon, it's Kent, right. it's all these, it's, it's sort of a, a great New York, it's basically, you know, a New York suburb. Um, I, I think the retail end of it all, I think these special like boutiques um, that have a point of view, that tell a story, that, um, you know, intrigue the customer. I think that's such an important part of the future now too, because I feel like, um, you know, with, I don't know, depart, tar, department stores, that's a whole nother uh, podcast, you know, <laughs> like where department stores are going and um, where like interesting department stores, like ABC was a great, interesting department store. Absolutely. Um, in its day and had a unique vision. And I think that has really, at least in New York, there's nobody kind of, jumped up there to fill that void. Um, so I think a lot of smaller vendors kind of went off and tried to do their own thing, you know, do, tell, tell their own story somewhere else. Well, and you, that's kind of where I see. Well, and that's what I'm wondering about. And, and I'm wondering if that's, if that's the opportunity for retail's rebirth in a, in a way, uh, because great, great stores are great experiences and and are something that i think people are longing to have again and it's interesting you mentioned bunny shop she always sort of jokes that i can never be without a, a shop i can never be without a store you know she had, to, <laughs> she had to close her stores in new york and then she she couldn't she couldn't help her one. couldn't help herself and uh yeah. and, and i know that charlotte moss sort of always feels the same way and alessandro bronca you know well i want to open another shop and but but i love this idea of these sort of artists and designers inspired stores that that have their own very special point of view uh, that that is sort of curated by the person who is sort of passionate behind the scenes about it all and and for you this opportunity to show merchants and and show designers your fabrics on furniture and 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 sort of fully flesh out everything that you that you're really interested in you know every time i'm talking to you right now is a perfect example people at home can't see your what's behind you but it's full of <laughs> it, it's full of inspiration you've right you've got, you've got a lot of things yeah, going on yeah i think for all the designers i think that's a sort of a theme um i think the small retail experiences it's it's sort of like when you're tra I think it's also when you're traveling and you find this little weird gem antique shop in you know a small city in India and I think um, I think for all these people like Bunny and Charlotte Moss and all these all these designers I think it's so fun to experiment and to have a smaller platform 
to try things. I think that's the fun part about the retail experience, and which is I, when I had a showroom, I would just sort of make some stuff and throw it in the showroom and, and see what happened with it. And I think that's the exciting part about, I, for me, having another, sh- uh, having a shop up in Connecticut is, you know, I can try some weird bone inlay designs or some carpets or some artwork or, and, and keep it sort of fresh and new and flowing and not be like, oh, I've got to make 500 of these things because of our normal flow. Right, of, because of whatever uh, your distribution channel normally is. Here, you can be a little bit or, more or, experimental, yeah. right? And yeah. Yeah, or production minimums. Yeah. You know, you're sort of stuck with, you know, I've got to order a thousand meters of something, you know, where you can kind of maneuver around and, and do more artisan projects and work with also some smaller artisans and do special limited edition. And I think, again, maybe even moving back towards the art world that way is like, you know, this sort of limited edition concept is, I always think, you know, sort of like an antique dealer, you're kind of selling a couple of these things and that's it, you know, it's gone, you know, and and that's sort of the fun part, I think, of designers like want to make and create and try and see and, and, and these smaller retail spaces offer it the opportunity without this, you know, $24,000 a month rent, you know, for 600 square feet on, you know, upper East side. Well, and, and in terms of how you imagine interior designers coming to you in the future, do you imagine that it's going to be a greater mix of the, of the online experience, but also uh, perhaps this sort of crafted retail showroom like experience that you're talking about? Yeah, I, I think for designers, I mean, I and I just this is talking to some designers and and they they're on the road, they're in their car. They were just going up to Connecticut to hit the stay at the Mayflower and go shopping in Kent at uh, Artifacts and then go by Michael Trapp shop. And, you know, th- they will not stop. You know, this, you know, this virus won't keep them. You, you, know, you can't hold designers back. Down. No, 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 they're, they're, they're looking, they're, they're shopping. So I think they're excited for different, like you're saying like that, you know, I would love to have fabric up in Connecticut, you know, bolts of fabric and furniture. And I think it, it, it presenting them and seeing what intrigues them is always fun. I mean, it's a fun, it's a fun conversation. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I'm, I'm hoping is going to come out of this. Whenever we come out of this, I'm, I'm hoping that we will have discovered through this process, some new ways of, of, of sharing product and, and showing people things, but also perhaps there's a, there's a, a longing for a different kind of experience that might be this combination of the, the, these, these showrooms and these different sort of retail experiences that, that feel, uh, much more, uh, in individual and 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 feel much more art, art, artistic and 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 sort of as you were describing earlier about your your own style they feel a little looser that feel a little bit like oh i'm i'm trying some things out i'm making something over here and i put it down and i i don't have very much of it so don't don't ask me for a yeah. hundred yards <laughs> of it but 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 if you like it you know then great then i might move in this direction with the online experience I think that they go hand in hand. I think, I mean, I, I don't want just want to be an online brand and that does what that does. And I think the small, unique art, artisanal experience is so much fun in combination with it. Yeah. So can, can we come and visit Connecticut now? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. You're, you're not so far away. No, <laughs> I've Bronxville's not so far. I can, I can get in the car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we're, we're gonna uh, my um, if my contractor follows through um, in April, April May we should be up and running. And I'm actually ordering some 
some, um, uh, probably a container from India. I'm working with a friend over there now to sort of get some things coming over. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for the spring okay. to be up and running. Okay. Cause I'm, cause I'm coming, yeah. John. I mean, I just wanted to know. Come. I'm coming. So you yeah, know, get, come up, come let up. Me, let, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> well, I'm sure you will. I mean, and, and it'll be hard to resist, but I'm, but I'm really looking forward to that. And, and so, um, good, good luck getting everything set up and I, and I can't wait to see it. And, uh, I'm, I'm excited for you and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's been, it's been so fun listening to your pod and I'm going to give you a plug cause you, I think you do such a great job on your podcasts. And I've learned so much about the industry that I've been in from you for <laughs> 20 years. Well, that's, that's very kind. And I'm, and I'm glad. And I wasn't paid for that at all. I think I, <laughs> there's no, there's no kickback here. Even though I, yeah, that, that, I think that you're doing a great job and, and um, it's been fun. It's really been fun learning more about the industry. Well, and I, and I appreciate you coming and, and, and sharing your, your story and your perspective, because, um, that's, that's part of what makes this show what, what it is, is, is really, you know, talking to people about their, about their business and what they're thinking. So I, I appreciate you making the time and investing in a microphone to, uh, to make this yeah. possible. So, um, that is, uh, that is great. Um, thank you. Thank you. Really all joking aside. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. And, um, please take care and we're going to talk soon. Oh, yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dennis. It's been lots of fun. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest industry news, browse job postings, or check out the latest product, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Albert Burge for Podfly. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll see you next week.